Russia's grain export potential in 2022 is going from 30 million tons to 50 million tons. And I think it's very clear where that, that extra 20 million tons is going to come from. Even if the season, even if the harvest, even if the vintage is a lot better this year, you know, that can explain you an increase of maybe 5, 8 million tons. It doesn't explain 20 million ton increase in, in uh, production. And uh, that increase is coming primarily from Kherson and Zaporizhia oblasts uh, under occupation, right? Um, that I think I think that's a that's a it's a note to be made here as well. So, Joe. Uh, thank you, uh, Domin. I I got cut off, um, and then I had to update my phone uh, before coming back. And I see that the, uh, a new space has started. So I'm guessing, perhaps, that the space crashed. Um, um, but um, uh, before before my my space, my uh, Twitter crashed, um, we were talking about perhaps um, someone having tracked uh, stolen grain and, and currently is doing so. Um, perhaps coming as we did did uh, was any more said about that? Um, because I yeah I missed it. Oh sorry, Sergio. No, not really. Um, we kind of said that you know it'd probably be a good idea to do it. Uh, it'd probably be a good idea to track it. We have a rough idea of how to do it on the basis of, well, any ships going out of Sevastopol or Berdyansk or Mariupol fully loaded, that's almost certainly stolen goods, be it grain or steel or whatever else. Um, beyond that, it's not necessarily the easiest thing to do. It's not necessarily the most, well, it's not the easiest thing to do simply because whatever goes by land to to Russia and then gets sent from Russia that is a little bit less clear um, on how to track because you can, you can blend it or, or whatever else. But as noted, right, Russia is clearly advertising to its, um, uh, to its uh, friends, such as Iran, that it has massively increased the capacity to export grain this year, and we all know why that is. Um, it's very clear where that is, and that, that is all on the basis of what they've already stolen and what they still are intending to steal during the course of this harvest. Um, I'll really quickly ask, so if you're around, um, we're talking a little bit about the loosening of sanctions on some of the Russian banks uh, yesterday by the EU, um, allowing them to uh, be a part of SWIFT for food and artificial fertilizer payments. Uh, from third countries. Do you have any sort of a, a, a grasp on how easy that is to circumvent or what sort of cost there might be on that to make sure that it is actually just food and fertilizer that's being traded by Russia through SWIFT? Or um, is there no way to really have a good, you know, or maybe we don't have access quite yet. Maybe we'll, no, no, we'll drag no, in a few fine. seconds. Oh, right. can you hear me? Yes, we can. We can hear you. There you go. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Um, the three things. A, technically, yes. Um, the compliance and surveillance of payments from from and between international banks and Russian banks can be surveyed and monitored. That's a matter of exactly that, meaning the action of surveying and uh, supervising them. So that's technically feasible. And the SWIFT system in that regard is just a, the information system and the connection. Um, the underlying contractual agreements have to be reviewed. Typically, that's part and parcel of it. And that is where it becomes tricky. This is not in our hands. And uh, 
so second part of this but this is of course feeding the russian narrative as if we now had to be mindful of being humane as if uh, the sanctions were inhumane as opposed to what they're actually addressing and uh, that is where the real issue lies that uh, we fail to substantiate our position this is the most insidious part of it and thirdly there is the old latin adage pecunia non olet money doesn't smell meaning it also or the austrians say geld hat kamasha uh, it doesn't have a bow tie you cannot rely on them actually only transacting for that purpose this is very difficult and unfortunate uh, that we allow it it's a major mistake actually how much can be done by tracking ships effectively right these things that are allowed be it food or be it fertilizer they're relatively cheap commodities when you look at it on a per ton scale so you uh, a relatively small transfer of funds will necessitate a large shipping vessel to to uh, to send it anywhere right um would simply tracking how many how large shipping vessels are being moved around be you know maybe good enough to get a grasp of how much of this is really being used yeah, for its intended purpose you can of course there is this is part of the surveillance effort and you can of course monitor this but still it does not mean um don't forget this is a payment for grain to be exported all right do you they don't need payment for it if they've stolen the grain to start with if it's payment for fertilizer um the people who control uh, the big potash supplies they don't they don't need money receiving it's a kotowing and complying with this request makes absolutely no sense for the free west see, the, the way i see it is that this isn't so much a request from Russia more a request from third world countries that whose governments don't want to be the next Sri Lanka not not of their own doing right and it almost seems like a way to kind of cut off Russia from having that excuse kind of like that turbine decision was cutting off Russia from having that excuse and now it's clear to everyone that it's Russia's doing right and and any non sending of food non non exports of food non exports of fertilizer to third countries especially in the global south which are traditionally sympathetic to russia right many of them um and especially those which are traditionally sympathetic to russia this kind of cuts out their excuse of yeah but still i understand this and it's a it's a political narrative but instead of, but, but the the issue is that we fail to explain matter instead of explaining the facts and instead of instead of disaggregating this and highlighting that there is actually no need for a food crisis instead of doing that we simply comply with a request that is what i'm saying it's uh, it's just childish I'm not saying that po- politics can't be childish but it's really utterly a failure of communication Well, I do have some good news on the agriculture front. Uh USAID has approved a new fund uh for uh, Ukrainian agricultural resilience, 100 million bucks. Uh we're looking for another 150 million uh in private funding, I believe, and maybe funding from other states. So, uh, Axel, you got uh, 150 million laying around? Can you uh, help us out here? Yes, not. With that, we'll go to Sojo. Sojo, go ahead. 
<clears throat> Thank you, um, Joseph. Yeah, Axel, um, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I think it, 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 it is a rather large mistake and it worries me somewhat um, that uh, we haven't stood our ground. Um, I mean, how much of a real current right now um, uh, 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 crisis, let's say, in, 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 in inverted commas, um, are third world countries in, in, in with regards to access to grain, for example, like current now, we're not projecting into, you know, a couple of months or over, over the winter, like right now. Well, I guess, I don't know, I'm not seeing a lot of unmuting going on, so just, so I'll, I'll just broadly answer. In my understanding, it's not really so much a grain crisis, it's just like a cost of living crisis or a, a price inflation crisis. I don't know what you want to call it, right? The poorest people have been priced out of the food market. Um, and this happened very briefly once in, um, what, like 2008-ish or 2007-ish when uh, the energy market uh, for like biodiesel went kind of crazy. Um, there's like a kind of a similar thing that happened. So I, I don't know. I think it's, it's a matter of uh, po policy, government policy. They need to create programs that distribute food to the people that now can't afford it because of an increase in energy prices. So that increased the cost of getting the food off the container ship onto, you know, the, the market floor. Um, as it were, and, and so forth. Um, but I don't know, Doman and Axley, uh, you guys there? Mm, perhaps they're, they're busy with something. Oh, hello, Doman. You got Doman, maybe. I was, I, was, I was looking into what exactly um, this USAID thing was uh, to do with, uh, with agricultural resilience for Ukraine. Uh, so I was, um, I have to admit to not having paid attention to what you've been talking about. Pretty great, right, Doman. I'm sorry. Yeah, it is pretty great. So a lot of it is to, to make sure that farmers who's, either crops were destroyed or, you know, equipment was destroyed, it, it will kind of get them back back on track, um, you know, to, for the next season at the very least, um, as well as, you know, farmers who are blocked from exporting that they don't go bankrupt because of that. And, and so, sorry, I was, um, I couldn't pay attention. Sorry, Sergio, could you bring up your, your last concern again, pretty please? Um, and uh, I, I, I'm very happy to talk about it. You see, what, what I was trying to drive at is that there isn't a, a, a lack um, of grain per se um, at the moment and, and um, probably won't be either um, after harvest season. Um, and as Joseph stated, that the, the problem is with some, um, um, some uh, poorer uh, countries not being able to 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 afford to buy the grain because prices are driven up um, because of the cost of living crisis, etc. Um, I mean, what kind of are there any kind of mechanisms we can put into place without having Russia sell stolen grain on the global market? I, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely astonished, really, to be quite fair. So, yes, I mean, there is. And something that needs to be highlighted, I think, is, for example, let's just look at the EU, right? The EU is going to be increasing their exports by, let's call it, 15 million tons of grain this coming year compared to the past year. Um, what does that mean? That means that about half the export of grain that Ukraine previously did Right, you, the EU alone is going to be 
to be exporting that much more. And remember, Ukraine exports aren't going to zero, right? Ukrainian exports are dropping because part of Ukraine is, is under occupation and therefore that is inaccessible and that grain is actually being stolen by Russia and Russia is exporting it. Yes, there are some. there is some destruction of crops within Ukraine because Russians are destroying fields and burning them down and so on, but okay, fine. Um, but Ukraine is a vast country and they're not destroying anything like all of it. There's still substantial quantities of grain from Ukraine that's being exported through, you know, Moldova and Romania, just as we had Oleg and Dan on a couple of days ago, who have detailed the immense work um, that, that the good people of Moldovan railways and uh, various Romanian shippers and, and trans shippers are, are doing, right? Um, I, I think that that's... Um, and, and and then you know there you still have you still have the, the the rail connections with Poland and up to the Baltics. There's grain exports happening in that direction. Um, so normally the, the the exports in Ukraine would be on the order of you know twenty million tons, thirty million tons of grain a year, if I remember correctly, maybe thirty five. If half of that is supplemented by increases of exports by the EU alone. And if you live anywhere near that where agriculture is happening, I think that you can see that there are fewer fields that have gone fallow this year. And especially that the, the uh, oilseed crops are up uh, pretty much anywhere. If, you're, if you live in Europe and you live somewhere close to where agriculture is happening, just think back of how many fallow fields you were walking past in years past and think about how much more oil crops specifically are planted this year in your area compared to years prior. And I think you can kind of intuit a slight uptick in oil crops and a clear downtick in the proportion of fallow fields. Because by the point when the sowing season came around in March and April, all of those decisions were already made and it was clear that the war in Ukraine is going to go on for a while and that Ukraine being a very large exporter of both grain and oil crops, um, that there's going to be an increased need. I don't know how it looks like in the US because I've not been to the US this year and I'm not as familiar with any particular region of the US to to be able to give that intuitive um, outlook. But everywhere I've been to in Europe thus far in the the spring and summer, there have been substantial increases, mostly places that I've seen before. There have been either substantial increases in in crops uh, in total so a smaller proportion of fields going fallow. Sometimes fields have to go fallow for you know nature reasons, but a smaller proportion of fields going fallow and definitely an increase in oil crops. And that is something that's being kind of ignored when you talk about grain, because it's not just about grain. A lot of it is because Ukraine produces a whole lot of sunflower as well as uh, rapeseed. That is what Americans call, usually call canola. And those are two very important oil crops. Um, vegetable oil, as in white oil, the sort of oil you use in cooking, most of the time that most people use in cooking, that can come from a variety of sources. Uh, but sunflowers and, and rapeseed are two principal sources for that. Ukraine was a huge producer of those. That kind of gets put cast aside when discussing grain, uh, but is actually possibly more important than grain in the big picture, uh, especially when it comes to prices. The prices of those went up far more than the than grain prices had. So anyway. The point is, the EU alone is going to compensate for a very large proportion of the reductions of Ukrainian exports. There is not a shortage. As Sojo, as you said, and as Axel keeps saying, there is not a shortage 
per se. Um, and the prices have gone up more because of the uncertainty than any, than any sort of even a local shortage. The uncertainty and the fluctuations and changes is what's driving up the prices. And um, Sergio, you're quite right when you say that the real concern is people not being able to afford much more expensive uh, foodstuffs now compared to previously. Um, and that is a lot of the reason of why, um, you know, of, of why, of why this is, uh, uh, of, of why this is also an issue. Um, some of the uncertainty, of course, is also coming from, you know, the, 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 the simple fact that there is a change that there, it is unclear, let's say, uh, what's going on with, uh, usual grain sources, especially the usual grain sources in terms of, um, uh, in terms of Ukraine. Sergio, I'll go to you in a second. I just want to remind everyone to please share and retweet the space because we have just crashed and just restarted. Uh, so just click that big blue button in the bottom right corner, tag some people, um, you know, put some hashtags, etc. all of that uh, usual good stuff. Sergio, please. <clears throat> yes, thank you. Um, um, and also, don't forget, um, is in, uh, you know, uh, the Midwest, uh, in, 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 in the States, they, do they not... Um, um absolutely uh, produce, uh, 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 yeah uh, quite a, a, a significant amount um yeah my, my i guess um one of the points i, I didn't make clear in in my in my question was are there any sort of um um sort of uh, yeah can we sort of artificially manipulate the, the 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 market in a way which we can get these foodstuffs to countries who possibly cannot afford um, um, to buy as much uh, as they normally could because of, um, for example, uh, higher fuel prices and things, as Joseph stated, um, and making logistics uh, more expensive and et cetera, et cetera. So and I, also, I think, of course, of, co of course, the the, the 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 whole sort of market um, uh, being a little bit nervous right now. So actually, I think that USAID being the one that we were discussing a little bit ago, they're, they're part of the system that help, that helps with that. Uh, so USAID is actually one of the providers, or at least helps the U.S. Department of Agriculture in getting food to uh, countries that actually need food aid right it's a mix of that and um uh, it's a mix of that and various un agencies uh, to do that um that's kind of how you how you get to how you get to it um so yes absolutely there is a way to to make sure that countries that need food and literally cannot afford it get it the other part is countries that usually buy all of their grain but now might be getting slowly priced out of it. I think that's the big concern, right, Soja? Um, the best way to, quote-unquote, manipulate the market is to assure and reassure and make sure that the exports are flowing and flowing at large volumes. The easiest, and, and not just to, for them to be flowing, but for that to be heavily publicized. That's the easiest way, I think, of mollifying the markets. And I think that's effort put into that. There's not enough effort put into um, 
clarifying to everyone, right, Axel, that there is enough food indeed and that there is no reason to panic. Right. So basically, as, as, as I understand it, we can boil it down to, to a, a couple of <clears throat> short sentences. The EU has made a grave mistake in, in, in uh, easing some of these sanctions. A, because they have capitulated to the pressures from the Kremlin, because pressures from these third countries are basically rooted in the Kremlin's, um, yeah, current, uh, yeah, machinations. Uh, And B, as Axel said, there is a massive lack of communication and there needs to be, that needs to be improved. Isn't, isn't that right? Basically, there's enough food and massive mistake because uh, we need to stand strong. Um, Putin, he, he does not re- recognize uh, 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 weakness <laughs> in his eyes. Capitulation is weakness. Empathy is weakness, basically. Am I, am I right there? Well, well, he he, he portrays it that way. That is certainly true. Absolutely. Yeah, I think on the symbolic front, you're right, Sergio. I think on sort of the strategic front, this isn't a huge deal just for the reason that even though Russia might get a little bit of money out of these sanctions being eased, um, it doesn't really help them to have more money. They can't buy the things they need. They need computer chips. They need machine parts. They need things that the that keep a modern economy running. And the U.S. has said no to all that stuff. So, um, and, and also Europe, too. So I think that that's kind of, the the heart of it in terms of the strategy but i think you're right in terms of the symbolic nature of it like i think that symbolically it sort of does lead into the russian narrative that um you know by cutting a deal with russia we're helping the food problem solve the food problem and that that plays into russia's information war in the the global south but doman uh, uh any thoughts on that go ahead i just want to say the free world has um very poor marketing. And that's because, broadly speaking, we think and we are correct in saying that we do not need to market ourselves because the results speak for themselves. It's ever more clear to me that a lot of people willfully ignore facts on the ground uh, and, uh, and, and prefer to, uh, you know, listen to, to nice words instead of, uh, instead of looking at facts. And this is where Russia seems to be very persuasive and other countries as well. But, but, you know, Russia particularly seems to be very persuasive in its marketing, even when um, facts speak otherwise. And maybe it is indeed true that we need to look collectively into marketing ourselves and our approaches a little bit better. The other problem is that there's a lot of... uh, Reactionary? Is reactionary a good word here? Maybe reactionary is a good word here. Um, uh, politicians and, and leaders in the West who will kind of jump at concerns of third countries a bit too quickly without thinking first, oh, but does this actually, th- does this concern actually uh, have merit in facts on the ground? So the example I like going back to is there was a poll by Radio Liberty, Radio Free Europe done in Serbia a couple years ago, maybe asking Serbia of how asking people in Serbia, how much um, does which country or group of countries contribute in aid to Serbia in their experience and their opinion. And it was basically 
um, I think it was Russia, China, EU, maybe there was US among them as well. So basically they said, you know, the, the responses were um, China and Russia contribute hugely and EU contributes a little bit. And then they had the pie chart and then they had the pie chart next to it that said how much various countries or groups of countries actually contribute. And it basically said the EU contributes a whole lot. Um, China contributes a little bit, but almost all of it is in loans. And most of it has only been promised thus far and hasn't actually been delivered yet. And then Russia basically doesn't contribute anything, right? And yet the people of Serbia believe that Russia and China give by far the most, and that's because they have excellent marketing, whereas the EU actually gives the money and then affixes a little plaque in front of the school or the hospital or whatever else they built uh, that says, you know, funding for this came from the EU, and then often the plaque gets destroyed by local vandals anyway. So I think this is an illustration on a one country, yes, a country that generally isn't the most, you know, amenable to um, to pro-European sentiments and is very amenable to pro-Russian sentiments. But but maybe it's a good example, nevertheless, because it's it's not exactly um, it's not exactly the only such country, right? Um, maybe it's a good example of just how well, say, Russian marketing of themselves, propaganda, however you might, you might want to call it, uh, just how well it works. And sorry for me having gone on a bit of a tangent, but it's just an example that really um, wedged itself deep in my mind. So, Joe. <clears throat> Thank you, Donna. Um, d don't apologise. Uh, you know, you, you, what you've come up with is, is very relevant. Um, I'd like to thank you all for, for this conversation. Um, it's something that's been on my mind since yesterday. Um, I'd like to just close... Um, by um, thanking you also, Joseph, for, for pointing out that on, on, the, on the big scale of things, you know, um, and you, Dom, Dom um, that, uh, that Russia isn't going to be making, uh, you know, a, a great, great deal of, of profit from, 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 from this, um, but that um, what really, what really gets, gets my blood boiling is the fact that they will be, it will be more possible than it already is for Russia to sell stolen goods, um, yeah, paid for in Ukrainian blood. It's uh, it's not nice. Anyway, thank you all. Thank you, Sandra. And yes, absolutely. And I, I agree with that. And that is indeed one of the bigger concerns here. Because if anything, it's going to additionally incentivize Russia to keep on uh, you know, stealing from Ukraine additionally, um, making it easier, you know, that that effectively provides an incentive. Um, so do I have a question for you? My question is, how would you market the free world? How would I market the free world? Well, because we just said, right, we need we need better marketing. We do a lot, as a, you know, collectively, we do, we do a lot. We're very good at doing things. We get things done. And yet our marketing sucks. And we are unable to persuade the world at large that what we're doing is actually good and effective and positive for them as opposed to what Russians do, which is very little but marketed very well. Well, I guess, um, you know, I, I'm no marketing expert. I'm, the only thing I'm expert in is, is boiling the kettle to make a cup of tea, as I've said before. Um, but I guess uh, what is, 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 is very important is uh, very close and good diplomatic relations, um, communicating on a dip diplomatic level, and also, um, you know, um, 
perhaps having oh gosh i don't know inviting students to come and study etc etc opening up um our sort of societies a little more um to some of these third countries you know sponsoring perhaps some um bright students um to come and study uh in, in our respective uh, countries that that could uh, help a little bit with uh, marketing ourselves and our points of view etc on on a on a sort of very basic uh level um yeah and other than that um obviously um, um mass media in 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 several countries um reaching out uh for interviews etc etc i don't know you know in several places um on this globe russia has a massive massive influence on their mass media um and i think uh, we've been you know uh, very slow to 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 get on that track i don't know investments uh, also i don't know it's it's not so easy is it i mean one there there certain there have to be certain stipulations within um a country um uh, anti corruption etc etc before we want to you know send lots of uh, money down there and building hospitals etc i don't i i don't know so if anything that i've said made any sense <laughs> i think it i think it had the, the thing is i think we're doing all of that right again when you when you, when you look at actually building hospitals or schools or or whatever else infrastructure in in all manner of countries the bulk of that financing is coming from you know the the, the free world uh mostly from europe and the us and there's plenty of you know exchange programs and the like and yet and yet it seems and yet it is it is true that um you know the the credit largely goes to third parties and and the 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 friendliness largely uh, ends up going to other countries such as for example Russia even though they contribute a whole lot less and even though they do a whole lot less um so so i think that's the that's the circle that you know that we're struggling to square here um Sergio, go ahead, and then we go to Lyndon. I, 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 I think if I, could, if I could jump in real quick here, guys. I think, like, so for me, right, there's four programs that I would like to see expanded in the United States. Uh, so the first is the state partnership program, uh, the National Guard. Uh, that was a program that helped train Ukraine. Um, there's a lot of states that um, the United States, I think, could help uh, train their militaries uh, with basically National Guard soldiers, which are you know, just like regular people. They're not like professional soldiers. Um, so a lot of them have other careers. Uh, the connections that they make are really important. Um, the second uh, pro- uh, program I'd fun more uh, would be Project Go. Uh, it's like an ROTC program. It's like for young, young military people in our uh, military uh, who go overseas and like they get to learn about the culture. They kind of have fun. It's sort of a vacation. But ultimately, they're digging wells and like, um, you know, hanging out with local people, living with local families and um, things like that. Um, So it's a good program. Uh, Fulbright program. uh, It's a program where a lot of foreign scholars in the U.S. come to teach uh, usually their language, but sometimes other subjects. And then lastly, the American Corner. Um, This is like a program where uh, like a a library or maybe some other place that's a public space. Um, America sets up like a little area. 
that has maybe some English language media stuff. Um, if there's any Americans in the area, um, they can maybe do like presentations and stuff. Like when I was in Tajikistan, I participated in the uh, American corner quite a bit. Um, so yeah, it's like a sort of like a Twitter space in real life. But so sorry for the ramble. Uh, uh, Sojo, back to you. Go ahead. That wasn't a ramble at all. Um, some very good suggestions there, so, so Joseph. I nearly said Sojo. Um, I think actually, I mean, you, you said yeah, we're doing we're doing all of this, um, dominant, um, uh, but uh, third countries uh, get the credit. I think really we're, we're stuck a little bit between a rock and a hard place in some respects because uh, the West and, and uh, as a collective is very financially strong, for example. Um, I think, you know, f- to some degree, to some degree, we're always going to be the bad guys, right? Um, massive national debts to the World Bank, uh, uh, well, yeah, World Bank, whatever, and think you know it can always be the narrative can always be twisted to certain to 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 uh, in in a negative way right so it's always easier for a country like say russia to say oh look at though look look at them they're the bad guys uh like they do with nato nato as an alliance is you know exceptionally strong right so there, one can more easily sort of, um, um, yeah, uh, uh, oh gosh, vilify them, I guess, in, in some ways. Uh, am, am I wrong here? I th- I'm thinking along the lines of sort of, um, you know, uh, the big team and the underdog kind of thing. Yeah, and so that, that, that's exactly the thing, right? It's the, the misrepresentation that they're managing to achieve and, and managing to um and, and and managing to feed to third countries despite it fundamentally not being true right um there's a lot of very probably very small very gentle things could be done were there a realization a broader realization that this is a problem within the free west and this not being a an outcome of the infighting that we're experiencing an infighting that's being fundamentally sponsored by the Kremlin and, you know, pushed by the Kremlin uh, within the various countries of the free world. Um, And if this is perhaps addressed first, maybe it'll be a lot easier to collectively persuade um, the world, let's say third countries, that it is indeed the free world that is contributing far more to their well-being and development than, uh, uh, than the, you know, um, than than countries such as, for example, Russia. Um, let's go on to Linda and Spring, and then we'll swing back to you, Sergio. Linda. Hi. Thanks. Um, I have three questions. Um, two should be relatively uh, quick to answer, and the third one might take longer. Um, so the first one is with regard to the fertilizer. Um, I don't quite understand why the world would be dependent on Russia for fertilizer. So, you know, what are the ingredients to artificial fertilizer? And, and um, so uh, what, let, let, what me, kind of- let me pick up on that one first. Sorry, one of the times I'm, I'm a bit slow uh, and I can't focus on, on too many questions at once. So okay. Russia is the largest exporter of fertilizer in the world. 
um, uh-huh. the things that go into fertilizer, some things are mined. A lot of things require a lot of energy. Russia has a lot of cheap energy. Therefore, it's a large producer of fertilizer. Uh, so between the natural resources which Russia has and the energy that Russia has, it produces a lot of fertilizer. It also exports a lot of fertilizer. It exports more fertilizer than any other country does. Uh, and they do it dirty. And exactly. And part of the reason why they produce a lot more fertilizer than many other countries is because they don't care very much about, say, the consumption of fossil fuels, but also the, the emissions that they cause in the production of fertilizer. Therefore, they're a lot more willing to produce fertilizer. A lot of European countries used to produce more fertilizer, but basically stopped producing fertilizer because it was not um, an energetically and from a carbon dioxide emissions perspective uh, tenable within the current legislative and regulatory framework. Next question, please. Okay. Okay. That, that makes sense, unfortunately, but I, obviously, you know, Russia needs to be cut off going forward. So we're going to have to figure out some other way, I think, with regards to the world's uh, requirement for fertilizer, you know, it's going to have to be resourced somehow. So I don't know who needs to, you know, who needs to address that and how, but I think that needs to be pushed. Um, my second question is with regard to grain. So if uh, here's what I I want to hear is an answer, but I have no idea whether you know this is feasible or not, and I suspect it isn't. So with regard to the selling of grain of stolen grain, um, so what kind? So the receiver is the the purchasers are going to have to pay for it, and um, what kind of a financial route is that taking? And can that financial route for a substantial amount of that be be uh, interrupted in that uh, the payments to Russia um, would be able to be confiscated and then that money going to Ukraine. Is that feasible or not? Um, I think most of the grain's going to Syria to prop up the regime there. Is that right, Delman, or no? Thus far, thus far, yes. A large proportion of stolen grain went to countries that were fundamentally friendly to Russia because Assad is very being propped up by, by Russia in the first place. Um, any future ones, this is where the concern is with the with the relief of sanctions on the Russian banks with respect to exports of food and fertilizer. It making it that making it easier for Russia to export stolen grain and sell it to third countries. Um, that is why this is a problem. Uh, some of it can possibly be somewhat interdicted, or at least the payments can be, or the payments can like the way the correct way to do this. Perhaps if the intent is. Uh, to make it easier is to do it through escrow accounts and only uh, things that can be shown that have been sourced not from Ukraine um, and that can be proactively shown that have not been sourced by stolen grain from Ukraine, for example, can be paid for. Maybe that is a way to do it. I don't think this is what's likely going to be implemented because it's uh, it's complex somewhat. Um, let's uh, end question three. Um, question three is, I'm thinking um, after the war is over, um, there is um, a huge amount of um, reconstruction, uh, you know, re, you know, the whole economic system redone, et cetera, et cetera, uh, in Ukraine. And uh, what an opportunity, frankly, for industry to go in there and rebuild uh, because they're a highly educated um, population um, and highly, obviously highly motivated, right? 
Um, so I see a huge opportunity for industry to go in there and build, you know, research facilities, manufacturing facilities, on and on and on, right? Um, so it's a huge opportunity for investment, frankly. Um, however, um, companies are not going to be willing to invest if, you know, they've finished a new office building and, you know, they're at risk of a month later, you know, some Russian, you know, missile landing on it, even though the war is ostensibly over, etc. So to what extent is this being thought about and what needs to be in place? I have my own ideas. What would need to be in place for corporations and, you know, rich, whatever, um, to heavily invest in Ukraine, uh, both to build Ukraine, but then also reestablish them as an economic, you know, power in the world. I have my own ideas, but what do you think? You know, that, that's actually shockingly straightforward. Um, I, I thought it would be something much more complicated. What needs to happen is A, Ukraine needs to win, Russia needs to be kicked out. Uh, that will happen. Secondly, um, the business environment in Ukraine has to keep improving, specifically when it comes to the question of rule of law and security and safety. That will likewise continue being established. Ukraine is now on its European trajectory, European path. It will uh, you know, be ever closer to joining the European Union. The part of that process is additionally improving things like the rule of law, and that will happen unquestionably so. And thirdly, appropriate security guarantees. Uh, once Ukraine is, uh, you know, freed and fully liberated, uh, such appropriate security guarantees will be there. A, in terms of there being a strong and well-equipped and well-manned Ukrainian military, which is good. And secondly, um, you know, we can, we can think that uh, Ukraine will stay uh, or, or Ukraine rather will become um, a part of various security guarantees, serious security guarantees, such as the ones that were offered to Finland and Sweden as they were in the process of joining NATO uh, by countries such as the US and the UK. Um, you know, uh, strong, uh, strong countries with a clear uh, military outlook. It, Ukraine doesn't have to join NATO for that. Uh, these can be bilateral things. And if the US and the UK and Poland, for example, all band together uh, with appropriate security guarantees for Ukraine, nobody will be attacking Ukraine again, period. Um, simple as that. So yeah, that, that's pretty straightforward. Okay. Uh, we, have, we have great hopes and great expectations for the rebuilding, and not just rebuilding, but the modernization of Ukraine uh, after the war is over. But the war first has to be won. That is yeah. imperative. The war first has to be won, and Russia has to be defeated, and Russia has to be kicked out of Ukraine, for Ukraine to have a future as a stable, developing, modernizing country, which is attractive to private investment and not just private investment um, in the most trivial of senses, but in the most long term, um, you know, in the most long term of senses, quality, uh, long term foreign direct investment. Mine's way yeah. shorter, Donnie. Ukraine in NATO. Three words. That's it. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Uh, can I add one one other thing, and then uh, you, sure. you, you gave me, uh, yeah, yeah, you gave me good information, but and I would agree with that, you know, yeah, uh, Ukraine and NATO, um, but uh, you know, one more option, I have seen, in my mind, you know, that I was noodling on, you know, mid March, uh, was, what if there were a NATO like, um, protection. Um, 
No, we, uh, we've, dis- we've discussed this. There's no point of having that without America. Why would you try to replace NATO with something that's worse than the Kurds? No, 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 no. Not replace it at all. A peer organization, not a replacement organization at all. But it would be those, basically those countries bordering um, Russia and the Black Sea. So I'm thinking, you know, Finland, Sweden, um, Estonia, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, Romania, Poland, uh, blah, 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 all the way down. Actually, you know, and that could be extended all the way down to Greece and all of the countries, you know, in between. There is no interest on their part because they're already a part of NATO. There is no, or Finland, Sweden will be in the matter in the next few months. There is no need for that. There is no incentive for those countries to do it. There is possibly incentive for, say, Poland, the UK and US giving bilateral guarantees to Ukraine, but there is no incentive for all of those countries to do it. And there's no incentive to do it, especially without the US and then we're back at NATO. There is no way this is happening. There is no need for this to happen. I think we've, we've dealt really deeply with this, Linda, previously on at least two occasions. There okay. is no, there, there's no, there's no way that this would happen because there aren't appropriate incentives in place for other countries to want to do this. Why would you have a peer organization when you have the gold standard already there that all of these countries are a part of? It just wouldn't. That that's just why it's unrealistic. Okay. Yeah, Europe's been talking about something like this for years, and I mean the truth is, like NATO, NATO is good. NATO establishes a standard for military hardware. It does it does everything that is needed for this type of a security alliance. And I, I mean, I just don't see any reason why Ukraine can't be in NATO. Russia doesn't get a vote, um, you know. So, I, I yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's just it's too uh, too speculative to start talking about a new organization. But uh, you know, and the features uh, we we can't predict everything. But uh, I generally agree with you on this one. NATO's plenty good for what what we need. And if it if NATO isn't possible for whatever reason, um, then I guess a bilateral guarantee between the U.S., the U.K., and Poland, and maybe some other countries would be good. Okay. But um, I think Ukraine and NATO is pretty simple. Uh, Gilman, go ahead. Okay. No, exactly. That That's all there is. It's it's that simple. There, there's no need to invent the wheel or to you know reinvent boiling water. Uh, we know how to do it. It's clear. The path is the path is straightforward. You do not need to to reinvent the wheel. Um, there's no benefit for it, and people simply will refuse to use a newly invented wheel when there's a perfectly good wheel already there. What about lead time? Because it can take years. Lead time? Nope, nope, no, 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 no. it doesn't. No, bilateral guarantees oh. take about seven seconds. Because uh, oh. that's how long oh, it takes okay. to sign a piece of paper. Look, look at what happened with Finland and Sweden. They were just announced. When Finland and Sweden said that they want to accede to NATO, but that there's a concern that Russia might do something between them asking for accession and actually acceding to NATO, Britain went and uh, um, the US went and a number of other countries just said, no, 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 we'll give you bilateral guarantees. Here you go. Here's a, you know, we're, we're just saying in case anybody invades Finland, we're not saying who it might be, but if anybody attacks or invades Finland, we are there just as we would be if Finland was a part of NATO. Okay. It takes about seven seconds. These are, there are no lead times. This can be done um, you know, in, in a shorter time than it takes to brew a cup of tea. It is very straightforward. It doesn't require, the U.S. doesn't need anybody else to agree with it that they can give bilateral guarantees to Ukraine of whatever level and 
in, in consideration they want to be. This is an internal US sovereign decision, for example, a UK sovereign decision, yes. a Polish sovereign decision. There's no lead time whatsoever. And if anything, this has already been, you know, kind of pre-planned and, and pre-outlined. There is no lead time whatsoever. I think we all agree, like, this is the time to do it, right? Russia's clearly uh, weak. They're diplomatically isolated. Like, if, if it's going to happen, like, after a Ukrainian victory would be the time to do it, right, Doman? Exactly. This is, this is straightforward, easy. Don't worry about it. It is not a problem in the slightest. Uh, that having been said, let's move okay. on to Sojo and then Scandinavia. Thank you, Linda. Sojo. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I would like to cede my position in the queue to, to, to Scandi. He's been, he's been up a while. Okay. Thank you, Sergeant. Scandi Nabel, go ahead. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, thanks, Dolman, for hosting the space again. Great discussion. Uh, I just wanted to interject or, or give a comment to your, your question or call out for better marketing for the free world. And I think there's a fundamental challenge there, though, uh, which is that, you know, I could be selling you a car and I could tell you that it doesn't use any petrol or electricity and it makes your bed in the morning and, uh, and uh, it costs you one ruble. Uh, in other words, the Russian marketing is all based on lies. And uh, we in the free world, we tend to say things that are at least moderately close to the truth, if not the truth. So it's very hard to counter that sort of false narrative and, and, uh, and kind of... Uh, marketing that's solely based on lies just a comment what do you think i don't know i think part part of me thinks that that this has something to do with the erosion of american soft power i don't know like i think in the past um maybe american soft power had more influence uh in in the world broadly but now there's social media that's kind of available in every country and every language there's content kind of tailored um, people, you know, you can make TV and make um, content for every language, every there's media environments for everyone now. And um, I don't think like American soft power has the influence it used to. And uh, I don't know, America just hasn't gotten used to adapting to that information environment. And I think maybe Russia's kind of has, but that's like just my general feel. I'm not an expert in that area. But Doman, what do you think? Yes. And honestly, I would diagnose that a lot of this comes from unnecessary internal divisions that are additionally fueled by other outside actors, including actors, uh, you know, to, 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 on the eastern edge of Europe. Um, and you can all, you know, finish finish the sentence there. Uh, yeah, but I would say that was true in the 80s. But the, back then, I don't know, there's still Coca-Cola and like Rocky movies. And I don't know, like it seemed like, just, I don't know, there was like a American soft power just had more reach. And now, I don't know, it seems different. There's not that same um, level of influence from it. But maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong about that. Don't me go ahead. Yeah, no, I think I think you, you know, you're 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 right. And again, that's uh, less soft power comes to, to a great part from, you know, some some missteps, but mostly from divisions with divisions within that were necessary in the first place. Anyway, um, no, complicated as it is. Uh, right, where were we? Uh, Scandi, I don't know. Um, I I think you're right. But I think that there's also just the, the the hubris that came with Fukuyama's. Oh, this is the end of history anyway. We don't have to, we don't have to worry about it all, uh, right? We don't have to worry about things. It's it's all it's all been settled. It's all been sorted. We won, and then no effort was put into it, and there was effort being put into it on the other side. Maybe that is a part of the consideration. Maybe. Oh, yeah, I think, I think we were. 
we were crazy optimistic like in the 90s and then we got crazy cynical after september 11th that's like my broad uh stroke of american culture sorry go ahead scandy yeah i i agree that uh, this erosion of uh of good policy good diplomacy laissez-faire uh economics uh the whole thing i think the you know the free world or the west so to say uh you know not with withstanding for for 9-11 but but on other terms uh, you know people in power i think had become intellectually lazy and uh and complacent given that things run so smoothly even if we don't do that much and uh you know the situation is quite different during and after the second world war when when you know every, every country in europe was undertaking huge rebuilding efforts and also revamping their society and you know in those good old days we actually had smart people with some real responsibility or, or sense of responsibility uh, uh putting the good for the country ahead of their political aspirations and, uh, and i think that that's a big problem in europe and it's certainly a problem in the u.s that's my take on that i would certainly agree uh okay let's go uh to, we got a lot of hands here so i'm going to go nina knockers adrian nina go ahead Thank you. Um, uh, did you uh, talk about this Antono- Antonovsky uh, bridge, uh, the impact of... A little that? bit, but not nearly enough. And actually, while we have Scandinavia up and Aaron up, I would love to talk more about it. Uh, Scandinavia, have you seen the, the video? I, I know Aaron has. Yeah, so have you seen the videos, Scandinavia? The two strikes on the Antonovsky bridge in Kherson? I don't think I've seen the video. I've seen uh, I've seen some stills, but is this, is this something recent? Yeah, so there was, there was one a strike, strike yesterday, uh, and then there was one this morning a few hours ago. Uh, where is the video? Where can I find it? I'll put it in the next. Give me a second. Tom and I think the the structural integrity of that bridge will be compromised after a couple more strikes. I don't think it'll take a lot. Yeah, I... so maybe uh, well, okay. I I concur. Uh, I I agree that the structural integrity is likely to be. Uh, now, but at some point soon. And if anything, it should be up in the nest now. If anything, it should be something of a warning to Russians that, you know, this has been well cited in by Ukrainians now as much as they want to, and um, that they should uh, that they should consider um, uh, that they should consider no longer being in Kherson and, and get themselves out of there. I think that's uh, that's a good part of it. Let's uh, give. Oh, sorry, Aaron. Uh, go ahead. No, no, that's fine. I'll concede it for the moment. I was just going to say, let's give uh, Scandinavia a chance to look at those videos. And in the meantime, let's go to Knockers. Knockers, go ahead. Can, can I have a follow-up? Because, uh, Domen, you said uh, you put it in the nest, and I can't see any nest here uh, in this whole thing. Uh, so, oh, uh, goodness, that must be a Twitter glitch, because I see it in the nest. But if you scroll up, okay, you, don't, so you don't see one I... tweet in the nest. Nina, you can also no, try... Uh, you can so also... I will... Uh, leave and come back again. Yeah, Nina, before you leave, uh, uh, the space is very glitchy, but uh, anything related to Kherson, try special Kherson cat. He posts uh, everything related to it, so you'll find it there also. Friend of the show. Well, that looks pretty amazing. Um, looks like artillery strikes to me, uh, but it, uh, there was a car driving across it, so I guess at least personal, uh, you know, personal cars can drive across, but I wouldn't drive tanks across that thing anymore. Exactly, exactly. I think that's the that's the summary here, right? It, I think it, it's something that kind of tells Russians, maybe it's time for you to leave and um, maybe leave your better stuff behind because there's not going to be that much uh, 
that much use for you to to try to to bring the the serious stuff across. Um, it, it will be you know you you might not be able to get it across. I remember anything big that you try to take across, we can probably see it and hit it with uh, with more artillery, can't we? It's definitely a lot of trying to disrupt the flow of troops around Kurson by the looks of it. So, especially Kherson Kat noted yesterday, um, there are two bridges. There's the Antonovsky Bridge and also there's the Antonovsky Railway Bridge, but, you know, whatever. Um, there, there are fundamentally two bridges, one across uh, the Dnipro, that's this one, and then one across the Inhulets River, that's the river that bounds 